I know that this career can end at any moment. This money is great when we get paid, but if you don't fight, you don't get paid. My friends are sitting there thinking, mate, you've got 40 grand there. But I then didn't fight for two years. So I had to live off that 40 grand for two years, which is 20 grand a year, which isn't nowhere near rich or made it. The UFC, a multi-billion dollar brand. My next podcast guest is a fighter, is an athlete and someone that is determined to become a UFC world champion in the next two years. Nathaniel Woods, welcome on board the podcast and everybody, please enjoy this episode. Before we start this week's podcast, I have to give a special mention to our sponsors. I Secure Vehicles. They are a brilliant company, a family-run business, and they specialize in vehicle safety and security throughout the UK. I know this company very well, and I also know the people behind the brand. If you've been following me on my podcast journey and on social media, you will know that I love cars and so does my network. This is why I'm very, very excited to be working with iSecure Vehicles, and this is why we have chosen them to be our sponsors for the Stephen Sully Study Podcast. Their team are professionals, experts, and they're efficient. Once their product is installed on your car, your vehicles, you will have the peace of mind that your asset is protected. Trust me, do not wait until it's too late. Get protection now. For more information about their products, including dash cameras, undetected immobilizers, and also car tracking systems, head over to isecure-vehicles.co.uk. And remember to mention the Stephen Sully Study podcast sent you. Right, welcome back to the podcast, Steve Sully's Study. We're here at Woodbury House in Mayfair, and I've got, I think you're my first ever USC guest on the podcast. So, Nathaniel Wood, thank you very much for your time. Looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, let's hope I am the first, because otherwise you might have upset someone if they have been on here <laughs> previously. But um, yeah, no, it's good to be here. And, you know, thanks for having me. Top man. What do you think about the, uh, the gallery? I know you came to a Black the Rat show, which you uh, reminded me of earlier. Um, what did you think of what do you think of the place and what do you think of some of the artwork? Yeah, it's lovely. I haven't um ever really had any experience in, in the world of art, but yeah, you know, some of the stuff that you was just showing me and the kind of stories behind it and stuff's pretty cool. So um yeah, I'm definitely gonna try and keep more of an eye on the art stuff now that I've come here and uh the event that I came to, is it how did you say his name? Black the Rat. Black the Rap. Black uh, the Rat? Uh, rat. Rat. Black the Rat. Black the Rat. Uh, yeah, some of his posters were cool. You know, it was like a, a rat with a machine gun. And, you know, I tried to convince my missus, said, let's get some of these uh, <laughs> sort of things in our house. But, um, yeah, she wasn't too keen on the idea. But, yeah, you know, I'm going to keep my eye open on some more artwork from now on. Good stuff. So I was listening to uh, another interview that you did uh, on the way up to work today, and I found it really, really interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, sort of um, say this quote that you said on on that particular interview. Between the years, the age of six to, to eight, you said that you were afraid of going to hell. Mm -hmm. What was that? What does that actually mean? So I suffer with OCD. Uh, like I've been diagnosed with it only in the last couple of years and anxiety and I'm on like tablets for that as well. And then in the interview, the, the lady asked about my OCD and I've, well, she said, what are your fears? And I remember when I was a child having fixed, you know, proper fears of hell. 
Now, someone said to me on my Instagram, they said, oh, it's just imagination. But what the difference is between OCD and just imagination is that I was obsessed with it. I could not get the thought of going to hell for doing something wrong out of my head when I was a kid. So I remember, you know, mate, I was probably the age six, seven, eight, around that, that time. And I think, I think I stole like a Haribo sweet from, you know, the pick and mix things mm. when I was a kid. And I was upset and I wouldn't stop asking my mum, well, am I going to go to hell? Am I going to go to hell? And I don't even know how I got that obsession in my head. You know, maybe I saw a film or something, you know, maybe I went to church and heard some story about hell, but I just remember being petrified, but thinking anything I did, I'd potentially go to hell. And the OCD, now I realise it was OCD when I was a child was because having that compulsion to constantly ask my mum, am I going to go to hell? Am I going to go to hell? And I might ask the same, about the same question 10 times a day. And it's kind of stayed with me ever since. So I have OCD now, you know, it has never gone. But the, you know, the fear of hell isn't necessarily there. But yeah, I remember when I was, I probably went on for a bit longer than eight. I probably had it for about four years where anything I did, you know, I think I played, um, you know, when you knock on someone's door and run off with my mates when I was probably 11, 12. And, you know, I remember going home and then just thinking, no, I'm going to hell. And yeah, you know, it's obviously, it's a strange thing to have and explain. Um, when I was a kid, I just thought, it was normal or it was just a slight fear. But I, I, I know now and I recognize that it was the OCD is that I had to ask my mum. And even if you, in my head, I was thinking like, don't ask her, don't ask her, don't ask her. My, my brain was telling me, you've got to ask her. And then when she'd say to me, no, you're not going to hell for, you know, knocking on someone's door or stealing a little Haribo sweet, um, I would still fixate about it. So, um, yeah, it's quite sad to think, you know, because if I thought about my nephew or my niece now, you know, who are a lot younger, if they had something like that, it would break my heart. But mm. yeah, you know, I guess it's still with me now, that OCD, and it's just something that I've got to learn to live with. So just taking that small segment as a, as a young, young, young boy, talking about hell, would you say like fear back then and even fear still today drives you as not just an athlete but as an individual yeah so i think fear is is there for a reason and i think keeps us alive the fear of hell isn't necessarily the best because it's not keeping me alive but i guess what you could say is it's keeping me a good person you know because if you're scared to go to hell you won't do anything that would put you there let's say um but for me now like yeah you know when i'm training and let's say i've got a a tough fight coming up I'll have anxious thoughts about losing I'll have anxious thoughts about my opponent being you know far superior to me and all that does is make me train even harder mm. um, you know I had before I got to the UFC I had big big fears of <clears throat> if I don't make this work what am I going to do with my life because I have no I'm a qualified carpenter but I couldn't hang a door to save my life I definitely didn't want to be sitting in an office room and for me, the fear of if this doesn't work is what am I going to do? You know, I'm never going to be able to afford a mortgage in this country. Um, and in a way, I'd deem myself a failure, you know, if I can't make ends meet. Luckily, you know, I got to the UFC and I can only put that down with the pressure that I put on myself. You know, I'm, I had to make it in this sport and I'd like to think that I have made it. You know, I've got a mortgage, I've got, you know, nice car, I've got nice watches. And, you know, I feel like I've made a success from the sport. And I feel like I've still got a long way to go. And I would put a lot of that down to the fear of 
losing the fear of not making it work. And, you know, I always say to people, pressure makes diamonds. Um, and I do feel like with me that that pressure comes from my own kind of fears that I put on myself. Okay. Being in sales, because in every single business, there's an element of selling because if you don't sell your products, your brand, your service or whatever, the business isn't going to survive. And typically the psychology is somebody or a business or an individual will purchase based upon two things. It's either the fear of losing out on something or the desire to gain. They always do typically say in books, you know, in psychology or in sales books that the biggest motivator usually is fear. Because if someone said, here's 10 million pound cash, or if you don't do this, you're going to lose your leg someone's going to avoid losing their leg rather than go after the money most of the time, yeah? But one thing I noticed just looking at your 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 social profile, you've got UFC, I think, fighter athlete. You had Cade Warrior World Champion and then you've got UFC Future World Champion, which also tells me that the desire to gain is also a big factor in, in your mindset. So visualization becoming a world champion ufc world champion is that something you practice day in day out and how do you go about thinking about your goals visualizing the future yeah so it's a funny one the last i'd say year and six months i joined the david lloyd's gym and in the gym that we've got it's a really nice spot so in the spa what i do is i wouldn't say i go every day i go every couple of days but I do my visualization, my gratitude and my prayers at the spa because it gives me something to do, right? It gives me something to uh, keep me occupied. So what I do is I turn up, I go into the steam room and the sauna. And in there, what I do is I go through all the things I'm grateful for. Then what I do is I go in the plunge ball, which is the freezing cold thing. And then I go into the hot jacuzzi. And in the hot jacuzzi, I'll probably spend like 20 minutes and I will just do all of my visualizations of the things that I want to achieve or where I want to be, let's say. And so far, since I've been doing it, I've won every fight and the things that I've been visualizing have come true. Now, I'm not saying that's just because I visualized it, it's because I worked bloody hard for it. Um, but now that I've kind of been doing that, I feel like it is, it's almost like a part of my training regime. You know, I've got to do it. So not only have I got to do the visualization, I've got to do the, the gratitude and I also do my little prayers to myself in my, in my head. Um, I don't do them aloud, you know, otherwise people might be giving me some funny looks. Um, and yeah, as I say, since I've been doing the visualization, it's been helping, it's been working. And I try to now take it a step back. So let's say I want to be the UFC champion of the world. To get there, I've got to get past my next opponent. So I try not to visualize too much the end goal. I try and visualize the goal that I've got in front of me because I've done it before where I've visualized past that opponent. And if anything, I've kind of underestimated him. So, you know, I'll have the last fight I had visualizing, you know, me coming out in the O2 arena where I've been before. So I try to remember, you know, everything that I saw in the O2 arena, the smell, you know, anything that I touched, I try and just go into that process. I think about winning, getting my hand raised. And obviously where I've fought in the O2 a few times, you know, it's very easy to me for me to visualize, you know, the crowd clapping, you know, standing on their feet, stuff like that. And yeah, that's what I do now. You know, I try and visualize the, the smaller things I want to be a multimillionaire. I'll try and visualize making the first hundred thousand, you know? Um, and the thing that I've said to people as well is that whether you believe it or not, that it has anything to actually do with becoming true, it makes you feel good. So, you know, if you can sit there and picture all the things that you want to achieve and you imagine that you've already achieved them, 
you come away with a good feeling. Um, and for, for someone that deals with anxiety and stuff, you know, if I do that, it keeps my mind occupied as opposed to going away with, you know, dark thoughts or, you know, worrying about dying or something like that. You know, it gives me something positive to look on. And yeah, as I say, it's, it's uh, enjoyable, you know, to, to visualize the things that you want to achieve. Yeah. There, there's when I think of boxing, there's so many like former world champions, current world champions, people that have blown up and become uber successful, not just financially, but hitting all the accolades of world champion, you know, having the yachts, having the private planes. And if they've become these real powerhouses within the celebrity world, not just from a sport sports aspect, but just being very, very popular. But I would say UFC has obviously been a newer kind of brand and hasn't been a, 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 a around as, as as boxing so some of the superstars there's 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 obviously a lot but they're more in recent decades mm -hmm. and when i think of them i think of the addison silvers i think of the john jones and then of course the one that probably most people will reference is conor mcgregor and when you just see his status you know as a really good fighter uh, winning two, two, two belts in two different divisions, world champion on, you know, the double champ champ, mm -hmm. and then going on to like boxing Floyd Mayweather and <coughs> developing these big brands and selling one of the brands for 180 million, etc. Is that kind of the blueprint? Is Conor McGregor a bit of a blueprint for young UFC fighters like yourself? I think he is, but not for myself. And the reason is because when McGregor first came on the scene, he was different, you know, he was very unique. The way he talks, the way he did the trash talk, you know, he was this kind of, where's this guy come from? And I think that's what's, you know, given him so much success. But now since he's come out, everyone's trying to replicate Conor McGregor. So Conor McGregor is no longer that kind of unique trash talk style because everyone's trying to do it. And I'll be honest with you, I can't do it to save my life. You know, if you try and say to me, go and act like Conor McGregor and put on this trash talk, put on this persona. I can't do it. You know, it's not me. It will become very forced and, and I think people would cringe. But the reason that I think Conor McGregor's done so well is because he is unique character and he is that one of a kind. So what I try and explain to the guys in my gym is don't necessarily copy McGregor's blueprint. Copy the blueprint of being yourself because I feel like McGregor was himself. You know, he was that sort of, there's no one like him. Now I do feel like he's gone a bit very trashy. You know, I do feel I don't necessarily have as much respect for him anymore as a person, but I do have a lot of respect of what he's done. Um, and that's coming from someone who, when he first started, I was a big fan. You know, I was a proper McGregor fan until probably maybe the Mayweather fight. You know, I felt like when the Mayweather fight came, that was that you've made it. You don't need to do the talking anymore, but he was still doing it and a bit trashy with the words he was saying. You know, I feel like when you get to that level, you should be a role model for the younger generation, not, you know, someone that my mum would say, turn the volume down when he's talking. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the blueprint that McGregor's shown everyone is that being that unique character, because we are all different, is what's going to get you up there. You know, obviously mm -hmm. people want to watch him. The reason I wanted to watch him because there was no one like him. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you know, he was very good at trash talking and he was very quick with his words and you know, I feel like that's the blueprint now. So when I saw that, I remember when I saw how McGregor was just himself, it kind of made me think like, be like GSP. You know, GSP was one of the biggest names in the sport and he wasn't anything like McGregor. You know, he was the complete opposite, but 
he was one of a kind, you know, because everyone was giving it the trash talk and GSP would turn up in a suit. You know, you'd have the typical tap out and, you know, your Mohicans and GSP would come and he was very well-spoken. You know, he talked about being bullied when he was at school. And I feel like when you are your own unique character, that's when people are going to tune in. So, you know, that's what I'm just trying to portray now and put across, you know, the person you see on the social media or, you know, the person you see when you're interviewing me, that is me. And I'd like to think people like it. And if they don't, then... I'm sorry, but that's 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 how it's going to be. I, f I feel like part of the reason why I slightly asked the question as well is you've got the fighting aspect, mm -hmm. which at the time he was untouchable when he was beating everybody. Oh, amazing! And yeah. obviously doing it, you know, against Aldo, I think it was what sixteen Th seconds, thirteen seconds. 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah. I mean, incredible! I remember seeing it and thinking, "Oh my god!" Like mm -hmm. no one could have predicted that. But then over time, obviously, he's lost a lot more than he's won in, in recent years. Uh, but still, his success as an individual and his profile has blown up. I mean, proper 12. I think he sold 100. He got $180 million out of that by selling all yeah. proportion of his shares. He's now clearly building up his, um, I think it's called Forge. Forge Guinness. Uh, Irish, yeah. Irish uh, Stout, which, yeah. is, which is like another, ver like a, his own version of a Guinness. Yeah. And he had, he's, he, I feel like he's kind of a, a master at marketing and public stunts because after Anthony Joshua won, there's him t t pouring uh, some of the stout into Joshua's, Joshua's mouth. And I don't know whether that was staged or what. And what I'm trying to say is it's almost like when your profile gets so big and your character gets so big, the, the, the fighting is kind of secondary and your profile, you can pivot into all these different business opportunities. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, but becoming multi-millionaire off the back end of your fighting career and also your profile that's kind of what i'm suggesting you know later on once you've done everything that you wanted to achieve in, in fighting or, or most of it will you use your profile to go into business opportunities mm -hmm. so i'm actually already doing it and i've been trying to promote it to people um especially the the kind of I'm only 30, you know, I feel like I'm very young in this sport, but I feel like I'm- clothing brand, right? Yeah, so I feel like I'm in the middle of, you know, I'm not retired and I'm not this young 20 year old that's just starting. And I'm trying to give the best advice for the younger people that are coming up. And one of them was start businesses. Now my businesses that I've made, um, they're not making me any profit, right? They're, they're, let's call them startups. I don't need to make money from them because I make my money via fighting. But I know that this career can end at any moment. You know, I've had injuries where you're out for two years and that means I'm not earning anything for two years. So if the UFC tomorrow just said, hey, do you know what, Nath? We don't want you anymore because we don't like you and no other promotion out there really I would want to fight on. You know, there, there's a couple now that are starting to come up where they probably could pay quite good money. And if so, then I would be fighting for the money. But I want to be UFC champion of the world. You know, money aside, that's that's my goal. So at any moment, my career could be done over and the thought of going back on a building site, doing something I hate, and I would have not know what to do. You know, if you said to me now, right, your career's over, what are you gonna do? I'm like, shit, I have nothing. So what I'm trying to do now is whilst I am a, I wouldn't even say, I'm, yeah, okay, I'm in the public eye, you know, now that I have a platform, I'm using that now to promote my businesses. Now, what I wanna do is plant these little seeds now and water them over the next, let's say seven years till I'm 37, and then if I think, right, it's time to hang up the gloves, I can do that knowing that I've got businesses that I can mm. afford to, to fall back on. My coach, Brad Pickett, 
he uh, was in the UFC. You know, he was uh, at one point number fifth in the world. Really, really talented guy. He's my coach now still. One punch. Um, yeah. You know, he's a legend in the sport. It broke my heart that he's last, I think it was just say four or three fights. He said to me, Nath, I'm done. I don't want to do these fights anymore. Like, but I have nothing else. Like, I need to earn money. Um, he now, fortunately, has a gym. You know, he's, he's, he's set up now, so he's good. Um, you know, money issues aren't, aren't a problem for him now. But he, he was, I remember looking at him once and I went in his bathroom and he was in the bath naked and his head was down and he just looked really sad down the dumps. And he looked at me and kind of said like, I don't know what to do. And it like broke my heart because I just literally pictured myself as him. And this is before I started my businesses. And I thought, man, I don't want to be in that position where you have to fight for money. He didn't want to. He didn't want to fight anymore. He didn't want to compete anymore, but he had to. Because otherwise, how's he going to pay for his bills? You know, how's he going to pay for his kids' toys and, you know, his wife to have clothes and, and whatnot? And that kind of scared the hell out of me, but also then motivated me to, right, start the businesses now so I haven't got the pressure when I retire. And what I want to do is retire on a high. You know, I don't want to retire on five losses on the trot. I want to retire with a win under my belt. You know, how GSP literally done it is how I want to do it. And I think that the... The root to that is falling back on businesses. And I'm not stupid either. You know, we, we get paid good money in the UFC as far as I'm concerned, or I do anyway. You know, I don't know what everyone else is on. But I'm never going to be a multi-millionaire with the money that I'm earning, which is fine with me. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I know the reality and yet I'm not an NBA superstar that's earning millions per game. But... I can make as much as I like with businesses. You know, there's no kind of ceiling to that. So my plan is to set these up now, water them over the next seven years and have something to fall back on, which hopefully is making me, you know, a shit ton of money. Um, and I enjoy it as well. You know, it's a, it's like a project to me. I'm mm. one of these people that I can't sit still for longer than an hour. So, you know, in between training sessions throughout the day, there's a lot of spare hours where, you know, if I'm just sitting there playing the PlayStation, I feel guilty. So, you know, having these business to kind of fall back on and um, do stuff with, do do stuff with my time, you know, it's keeping me active and I don't see it as work. I just, I just see it as fun. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I was listening to this uh, other interview that you did and if I'm, if I'm correct in saying, uh, Nathaniel, you started your clothing company to challenge other sports brands, but it wasn't for the need of doing it. It was basically to pass a bit of time because in the morning you would train. In the afternoon, you'd probably be resting or, or doing something, you know, casual. And then over the evening, you'll be training. So during the day, rather than kind of do nothing or focus on probably the wrong thing at, at times, focus on the business. Is that is that where it came from, just to fill, fill that void? 100%. Um you know, when I started my kind of anxiety journey, shall I say, where I was kind of diagnosed with it, I'd noticed that at my worst times was when I was in between training sessions. You know, at the time I was traveling up to North London to train. So from where I was, it was an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back. So other than the session, that's three hours spent on my own on the train. At the time I didn't, you know, didn't bring a book, didn't have my headphones in. And I would just be sitting there, just letting my thoughts go away with me. And that's where I feel like that put me at my worst kind of stage in life. And that's what kind of brought the anxiety triggers on. Mm. So one of the key things for me and that my dad noticed and that the doctors noticed was that keeping busy mentally is what helps me stay out of them anxious, depressive states. 
Um, so yeah, now, you know, you'll never see me just chilling mentally, you know, sometimes when I go on holiday, I'm a bit anxious that I'm not going to be doing enough stuff to keep my mind occupied. Um, and obviously where I train in between them sessions, I have to rest physically. So now, <coughs> sorry. So now that's why mentally, you know, I've got the businesses. I try to read, you know, I've only got one game that I kind of put on the PlayStation sometimes, which actually keeps my mind occupied. It's like a tactical game. Other than that, I just go away with the fairies. Um, and doing things like this, you know, doing the podcast while I'm talking to you, I'm not thinking about other stuff that's going to put me in a bad state of mind. So, you know, I definitely think that keeping mentally active is key. And <laughs> trust me, trying to start businesses is, is definitely going to keep you mentally um, busy at all times. Yeah. I had a, uh, I don't know if you know him, uh, it's a guy called Alfie Best. <clears throat> yeah. He's a um, traveler, you know, yeah. made huge I follow him on Instagram. Yeah, yeah huge, yeah. huge amount of money. He's been on my podcast twice, so has his son. And I think it was actually his son echoed a saying that his dad told him when he was younger, which goes like this, the devil makes work of idle hands. And it's so true. Like if you're sitting there over the weekend, you've got nothing to do. And I can imagine a lot of young, successful alpha type men fall into this trap, which is, I don't know what to do. I'll go down the pub and mm. they end up drinking. They end up doing other stuff. They end up having a fight or they end up yep. pursuing something they should, shouldn't be pursuing. <clears throat> If you've got a lifestyle, whether that's boxing, MMA, pursuing business, you know, learning an instrument, learning a new language, the devil can't get into you because you haven't got idle hands. You're always focused on something. And I even try and remind myself of that saying every so often because there are moments I'm sitting there thinking, what should I do? And before you know it, you, you, your mind wanders up into, into a load of rubbish. So look, go, go, going back to your journey then, the, the fighting journey, um, my question to you is this. What I said earlier about all the glitz and the glamour with boxing, you know, um, I'm 37, so I know you're, you know you're a bit younger than me, but you probably, you know, growing up, have seen all these talented boxers making a huge amount of money and making a big name for themselves. Why didn't that sort of attract you more than going into MMA and therefore the UFC? Why didn't you become a professional boxer? So... One thing with boxing is I feel like it's a sport that you have to start at such an early age. And I feel like there's a lot more involved that's not just about being a good boxer. So what I mean by that is it's a lot more political. You have to sell tickets. You know, I know that for a fact. I know Southern area champions that, you know, were stressing about money because they couldn't sell enough tickets and they were being, you know, nudged a bit by the promoters, let's say. In the UFC, I can't get the tickets you know i get given a couple of tickets for my family members and then i have friends family messaging me saying mate have you got tickets and i'm like bro i can't get none literally you know i can get you a link but then if you're going to buy the tickets there's probably people selling them on the ticket masters for like triple prices um you know you don't have to what's the word you don't have to worry about that stuff with mma you know in the ufc it's literally fight the best guys on the planet that's all you got to do train you know stay healthy don't get injured don't take drugs you know because we, we get tested don't take steroids you know illegal substances turn up on the night fight one of the best guys on the planet and that's all we want from you whereas with boxing i feel like it's more hey we need you to sell the fight the ufc sells the event itself and uh i realized that the other day when i went to um the, the aj fight on the weekend until i think the Derek chisora fight which was co-main i think i was right mm -hmm. There was empty seats everywhere. Now, it was a sold-out arena, 
But boxing, I called it a main event sport because no one's there. They're only there to see, let's say, Derek Chisora and Anthony Joshua. Whereas the UFC, it doesn't matter who they have on, they're going to sell out because people say, you going to the UFC event. You know, what are you doing on the weekend? I'm going to the UFC event. With boxing, it's not. It's, are you going to the AJ fight? Or, you know, are you going to Derek Chisora's fight? And I feel like now with the UFC, that's what, that's why the UFC is so powerful because they don't rely on the fighters. You know, they have promotion and they have the name themselves. So, uh, yeah, you know, I kind of went off a little bit there. But, um, yeah, I think that's why the UFC is so powerful now and that they can literally just put on the fights they want. They don't need journeymen. Yeah, but, you know, going, going, sort of going back on the question slightly, uh, and there's obviously probably a, a greater reason why you started it, but part of your skill set is you have to be a good boxer. You also have to be a good grappler. You have to be good on the floor. You have to be good at tire fighting. Wouldn't it be easier in some, some, some senses just to learn that one craft and do all the same sort of training and all the same sort of dedication, go out there and maybe excel quicker or doesn't it really work like that? So it's a tricky one because with the boxing, obviously you've only got one discipline, but so is your opponent. So, you know, you might have done 10 years of boxing, but your opponent's also done 10 years of boxing. So you're both on that same kind of level. With MMA, what I like is you've got the plan B. So, okay, I come out, let's say I feel like I'm the better striker than my opponent. Let's just say he hurts me. You know, he throws a lucky shot, catches me. I can take him down. You know, I can clinch. I can go up against the cage. I've got so many different forms of winning. It's so more natural. <clears throat> so with boxing as well, you know, obviously you knock me down. Let's say it's a lucky shot. You get a lucky shot. I get 10 seconds to recover. Right. Okay. Now I'm not going to let you have that. So I can make mistakes, let's say, in boxing. What I love about MMA is you cannot make a mistake. You know, with a four ounce glove, if you land a lucky shot, I'm out cold. You know, you, you could completely knock me out. I could end up in a submission um, by pure luck. And that's what I like about the sport. It's the blessing and the curse, let's say. There's so many ways that you can lose. It's like a chess match. And I think that's what makes it more exciting is that it is that anything can happen. And, you know, I don't know anyone that would, I, I don't see why anyone would bet on MMA because literally you could have the best fighter on the planet fight someone that's nowhere near ranked as him and, and, and still come out the loser. Guys, I wanted to hop on here to once again thank the sponsors of this week's podcast, iSecure Vehicles. When we were searching around for sponsors for the channel, we honestly wanted to get a brand, a company that would give massive amount of value to our audience. And that is definitely iSecure Vehicles. They have a wide range of products which are designed to keep your vehicle, your asset safe and secure. Some of those products are dash cameras, undetected immobilizers, and car tracking systems. Head over to iSecure to look at their products and make sure you say that the Stephen Sully Study podcast sent you there. Have you ever watched a UFC fight where you thought to yourself on, on, this, on this tone or on this note that, um, yeah, if I had a million pounds to place a bet today, I would definitely put it on this person because... I feel they're going to win because of their winning streak, et cetera. Have you ever watched a fight, assumed someone's going to win, and actually they got, they got KO'd? Never. And you look at the prime example, McGregor versus Alder. Yeah. You know, everyone, I actually will stand to this day and say that I had McGregor winning, not like he did, but everyone was saying, how, you know, Aldo is one of the best pound-for-pound -pound fighters on the planet. 
you know, he was the guy that just smashed everyone. And then here's McGregor coming along. No one thought he was going to beat him. And he done it in 13 seconds. You know, literally landed that one punch. And then they uh, then got the knockout win. So, you know, I think that sort of speaks volumes in mm. that this sport, anything can happen. Mm. Um, do you know, so off air, we were speaking uh, before we started, we were talking about the, 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 the money side of stuff. And we've touched on it already slightly about building up your profile, obviously making money from the fights, but really and truly where you're going to become a self-made millionaire, someone that is uber successful, kind of probably isn't from the fighting. It's going to be from the money that you make from the fighting and then you invest it into businesses or assets and that's how you become very successful. Um, Conor McGregor, right? Okay, let's look at the two people that dominate a sport. Mayweather in boxing, who's getting 300 million a fight for Pacquiao, and something very similar when he fought McGregor. And then, you know, there's, there's been other times where he's, he's got tens of millions by fighting Canelo Al- Alvarez and Oscar De La Hoya. I mean, he's grossed over a billion dollars in, yeah. li- in his lifetime. And then you've got Conor McGregor, who makes a huge amount of money from, from fighting now because of his profile. A lot of young fighters, boxers or MMA fighters will look at that and kind of see it as a bit of a blueprint, but also a bit of a bit of a goal, and think, right, I'm going to go out there and start making myself millions and millions of dollars from 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 fighting and become become famous. The reality is, there's only a few people that make it to the top who even come close to to making that kind of money. So along the way, can you give us a bit of an insight to the kind of money that some fighters will be getting in their fair few fights? how the bonus structures are, what is on the line, how much risk there is. And then once you actually get that money, how it's broken down to taxes, um, you know, sports therapy, your trainer, um, nutritionist, you know, give, give us a real breakdown to hit home to the audience, the realities of the finances in, the, in your first few, few, few fights. So if you're just purely fighting, so <laughs> my motivation when I started was that I want to do this for a living. That was literally it, but it wasn't, the glitz and the glam it was because I just wanted to be an athlete that's what you know I was passionate about but what I say to people is that for the first let me think nine years of my career I had didn't have a pot to piss in you know I was a cage warriors world champion and I think I got 1500 quid to fight luckily I sold a lot of tickets at that time so you know I probably made a couple grand on tickets but let's just say I did that three times a year which was being the champ, a world champion, that's 15 grand a year. I think I earned more in McDonald's if I, if I went to work there. Um, my first professional fight, I think it was 100 quid. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm coughing so much. Um, there is no money in the sport until you get to the big time. When I got to the UFC, I can't actually remember now. I think it was 10 and 10 or 12 and 12, which is kind of like the standard um, pay bracket. And what I explain to people is that the UFC, when you get to UFC, you haven't made it far from it, but you've made a platform that you now potentially could make it. So my debut, let's just say it was 10 and 10. If I lost, it would have been $10,000, which in English currency is what, eight and a half grand, something like that. You got 20% for your manager. You've still got to pay your taxes. So I literally, if I had lost my UFC debut, would have walked around with probably in my pocket, let's say, four thousand pounds which is nothing you know if i did that three times a year that's twelve thousand pounds like who's going to live off that but if you win in the usc you always get double so my contract i think let's say it was ten thousand i won so i got twenty thousand 
Luckily, I got the bonus, which was performance of the night bonus, which was 50,000. So I literally had in my bank, let's say a week later, 40,000 pounds, which to me was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'd never had more than 200 quid in my bank, you know, because the 1500 quid that I would have earned on Cage Warriors would have gone straight to, you know, the bills that I owe my mum and dad or, you know, things that I had to buy. Um, And all of a sudden I've got 40 grand in my bank. Like, that's it. I've deducted the taxes. Everything's paid for. I think the tax was paid in America at the time. Um, I didn't know what to do. I thought I was rich. You know, I thought I made it. But then in hindsight, now I realize, you know, it's not actually that much money when you look at it. Um, the structure with the USC is that at the time I, I was signed on a four fight contract. So if you get 10 and 10 and you win, it goes 12 and 12. If you win, it goes 14, 14. So every fight goes up a couple thousand. And then before your last fight, we renegotiate the contract. I think I was undefeated on my first contract. So then I went up to around like the 26, 26 mark. <clears throat> and again, I was sitting there thinking, you're telling me that for, to win a fight, I'm going to make $52,000. And I do this for fun. You know, I, as long as I was making ends meet, I was happy to do this for a living. And now you're talking about serious money as far as I'm, as I'm concerned. Now, you know, I'm on, I think the fight I just done was... 45 and 45 so that's 90 grand with a potential bonus that's 140 grand for one night's work if you do that three times a year it's good money it's good money but if you win you know obviously if you lose you get half people forget you got they, so my friends once said to me mate you're paying for the dinner tonight and i went why they went you've just got fifty thousand quid in your bank and i said yeah but you're forgetting i do have to pay tax i do have to pay my manager's cut i do have to pay my coaches some money you know, I don't, they don't actually charge me fortunes, but you know, you, you've got stuff to pay. I've got to pay the camp. And if I've got 40 grand, so sorry, so I'm, I'm kind of going all over the place now, but there was one fight I had, it was versus Casey Kenny, and I lost. And I thought I won, so I was pissed. And I think I got <clears throat> 26,000. And then luckily I got the bonus. So we both got fight of the night bonus. And then in my bank, let's say I had, 40 grand from that fight so my, my friends are sitting there thinking mate you got 40 grand there but I then didn't fight for two years so I had to live off that 40 grand for two years which is 20 grand a year which isn't nowhere near rich or made it I said to my mates I said look explain your wages to me and I said you earn more than me so then they started to kind of go oh, okay you got a point because that's what people forget you know you get paid in big chunks in the UFC but if you go and spunk that money what are you going to live on you know, fortunately, I do have some good sponsors, which pretty much just cover my monthly rent and outgoings. <clears throat> but you won't see me, you know, splashing cash um, because as far as I'm concerned, I need to hold on to that until my next fight. So since then, I have now kind of with the mindset of, you know, invest my money and stuff. And that's why I started the businesses, because, you know, this money is great when we get paid. But if you don't fight you don't get paid and you know you can sit on 40 grand it will go pretty quick you know if you're uh, not earning any more money and buy your own businesses is there a way of topping up that kind of money so for example I, I use an athlete that is a bit of a unicorn but is someone that everyone everyone will know Ronaldo obviously he's gone to a Saudi Arabia football team 
earning a lot of money. But then on top of that, he has someone like a Nike endorsing him 100 million a year or something like that. So regardless whether he kicks a football, scores a goal or helps his team win, Nike are going to be paying him a shit ton of money. Do you have the same advantages as a footballer? No. So the sponsors, I've all got myself. I have to, I don't have, you know, I, I have a manager, but my sponsors I've got myself. And, you know, occasionally you might get one or two here or there from your managers, but it all depends on you as an athlete. So in the UFC now, we can't have logos on our shorts. So if you said, for example, hey, now if I want to sponsor you, but I want my logo on your shorts. I can't do that because the, un- the uniform now in the UFC is Venom. That's what we have to wear. Now, I'm fortunate enough that I've got a lot of sponsors that they believe in me as a person and they like to financially back me. Um, and they know that they're not necessarily getting much from it, but they're, you know, a part of it now. They're no longer just a fan. They're my, my sponsors. You know, we've been, I've got people coming to my wedding that started off as just a sponsor and then we've become friends from it. And I'm fortunate enough to have that. And I do get monthly, let's just say it's, I think, £1,800 a month that I get through sponsorships. That's about five sponsors. So <clears throat> that's far from Ronaldo, but it's something. You know, there's some people out there that don't have any sponsors. And then there's some people out there that I know that are on about 100 grand a year just on sponsors. So it's very much, when it comes to sponsorships in the UFC, it's about who you know, really. You know, a lot of my sponsors are just people that luckily I was introduced to by, and they said, yeah, mate, you know, I've got, fortunately some a few quid to give you and you know we want to be a part of it and we want to back you but you know i, n- I haven't necessarily got contracts in with them so at any moment they could just say if, if you're injured i mean, you're not fighting i don't want to sponsor you whereas with ronaldo you know i assume they have some proper contracts in place and um you know it's a little bit more professional um so yeah you know mma is a scary sport when it comes to financial you know, and now, now there's, there are more opportunities than when I first started. There's more promotions out there now. And I would say to people that you can always fall back on coaching. So I do the occasional personal training with people. And that, again, is just to kind of keep me busy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about scary moments and also the fear. And it's predominantly circulating injuries. Now, you mentioned that you were out for two years. What was the injury and how was you mentally when you was off for two years? So the first injury was coming out of that fight. I haven't never actually properly diagnosed me. It still hurts now, but I had kind of, there was a tendon and a ligament and I had torn the tendon or I'd torn the ligament and the other one I'd split down the middle. So that put me out for about a year. Then I had to obviously get back into everything. So, you know, I think I had a fight booked, which was, let's say in three months time, Month out, I went and broke the metacarpal. So in the same hand, but a different injury. That put me out for four months. So then by the time I fought, I think it had been 21 months, you know, almost two years um, with no money, nothing, you know. And those two years, they weren't coming straight off the Casey Kenny fight that I had. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't too down in the dumps because I never knew how long I would be sitting out for. But when I broke the metacarpal, I was sitting there thinking I might just try and go and become a postman or something because I was thinking, you know, the luck's not on my side. You know, I'll just keep getting injured. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, fortunately, you know, I never actually went and got that, that postman job. I, I you know, went, went back to training and, you know, got on with it. But it was mentally a little bit of a dark place because 
this is what I do, you know, and if you take away what I do every day, there's not much left for me to do. Um, so that's why I spent a lot more time trying to work on my businesses when I was injured. Um, but yeah, you know, it can be a very boring, dark place. Yeah. I heard um, you was uh, four weeks out from a fight and split your knee open as mm -hmm. well. And you had that's to call off that, that, yeah. that, that fight. Talk to me about that. It sounded horrific. You hit a corner. Like this, on, like on, a lip. Yeah, on, on the mat. And it was, it was the wooden kind of, I don't want to call it post, but it was like on uh, the, the, the lip on the outside of the mat. Yeah, so imagine this table here is a trim going around some mats. So this is all matted area. There was a tiny little bit of mat that I guess had just dropped down. I had shot in for a takedown. And as I've landed, I've literally hit my knee and degloved the knee. So the skin just pulled back. <coughs> Man, I don't know what's going on with me today. I'm coughing all over the place now. So good. Um, and literally, I, I had my knee bent. I landed on the floor. It didn't really hurt. But I thought, oh, shit, that didn't feel good. I literally can explain it as it felt like someone pulling my leg skin down. Mm -hmm. And I looked, saw everything, saw the bone. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, straight to A&E, 14 stitches later. And this was a month before a fight. And yeah, I couldn't train. So they said, it's almost a bit annoying that it wasn't more severe. So they said to me, look, you know, you've got 14 stitches. I think they said it's about a month and then you should go back to training. But you know, I can't fight with no training. So unfortunately I had to pull out of that one. And, you know, like I said earlier, don't get paid. So I had spent all this money on my training camp. You know, the buildup was great. I was going to go in there and as far as I was concerned, smash the fight. And now I'm looking at on the sidelines, you know, not being able to earn any money and back injured again. But, you know, fortunately it wasn't nothing too serious. It was just basically a big gash on my knee. And, you know, I was able to go back to training after a month. Yeah. Um, in uh, in UFC in MMA, I feel that some of the fighters that I've certainly been around, not that I've ever really done MMA, obviously more of a boxing background, but so I've seen some of the fighters back in the day, They, I felt they were slightly wired different. They were like animals, especially when I was younger. I feel like they, they really would love to fight. Whereas boxers, there's obviously the you you would come across the occasional fight, boxer who loved to scrap, but they were more about the art of of maybe maybe boxing. Would you say you have to be slightly wired different to be an MMA fighter, someone that really likes to have a fight, or no? There's actually a lot more skill in, in, involved, and you have to be more skillful than the mindset of a fighter. No, I definitely think you have to be more skilled now. And if anything, you just have to be very intelligent because. It is literally a human game of chess. Now, like chess, you know, when the people that you see play chess are usually very clever, very switched on. It's exactly the same. Um, back in the day, you know, it was more, a bit more cage fighting, if you like. You know, it was that kind of, who's the harder bloke? And, you know, you could kind of rely on your athleticism a bit. But now, you know, you have to be very switched on. Um <clears throat> Even in the training, you know, the training approach, you need strength conditioning, you need nutritionists, you know, you can't just rely on being able to throw a shot. And the sport in jiu-jitsu, judo, you have to be shown this. You know, growing up as a kid, I could always kind of throw a jab. You know, my dad said, all right, this is a one-two, this is a hook. You kind of, you know, everyone kind of knows how to throw a punch or I'd like to think so. With jiu-jitsu, you won't know anything. It's like learning a new language. You know, if I don't show you a submission... I'm pretty sure that you're not going to know how to do any of it. So if I said to you now, right, 
throw me a, a punch, someone will know exactly what to do. If I said to you, show me a full guard sweep, most people would say, I don't have a clue what that is. So that's the thing that MMA now is a little bit different. I think to boxing is that a lot of it, you have to be tall mm. as opposed to just kind of uh, lying on natural athleticism. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it reminds me of Chuck Liddell back in the day, who was mostly a stand-up fighter, knockout artist, and he just reminded me of a pure brute, someone that would just have it. It didn't matter who he was fighting, he would just fight you. And then fast forward the clocks, people like a GSP, who are a lot more methodical in their approach and a lot more tactful and a lot more skillful. Um, so, so in your own arsenal in your own game Nathaniel what would you say your your complete strengths and maybe some of your weaknesses in your MMA game so I definitely would say I'm a striker and I actually started with jiu-jitsu so I feel like my grappling is just as good as my striking but the reason I say I'm a striker is because I prefer to do that and it's not because I prefer it it's because I know that the crowd want to see that and I kind of pride myself on being an entertaining fighter so you know, if you said to me now, right, just out of your own fun, it's just you and me here, shall we have a spa boxing or jiu-jitsu? I'd probably say the jiu-jitsu is going to be more fun. But I know that the crowd, for them to watch it, they're not going to want to watch that. You know, they're going to want to see knockouts. They want to see guys, you know, going toe-to-toe. And that's what I kind of pride myself on. And that's what I want to be known for. So because I... would, Because I prefer to strike in my fights, I would say that that's what I'm better at although I'm still just as good as jiu-jitsu and, and with my grappling so yeah I would say I'm a striker but I would say that skill wise I'm, I'm well rounded okay um, so the other big brand is Bellator UFC Bellator who do you think is the better brand who produces the better fighters so UFC um, without a doubt and with Bellator I actually fought on Bellator once before and believe it or not I got paid 1800 pounds uh, sorry 1800 dollars um, <clears throat> so that just goes to show the difference I was like one of the first fights on the card but I feel like with Bellator they're a very good promotion depending on who you are so you know with the UFC the whole kind of as I said the UFC sells itself with Bellator they kind of need the fighter so a big one was MVP you know Michael Venom Page um, people would go to watch him you know I know people that are like oh mate you're going to go to the, the MVP fight they're not sitting there saying, are you going to go to the Bellator show? So, yeah, I would definitely say the UFC is the, the premiership. You know, that is the, the number one. If you're the UFC champion of the world, you are number one on the planet. If you're Bellator champion, <clears throat> you're very good. Don't get me wrong. You're very talented, but you're not the UFC champion. And, okay, so you had that one fight for Bellator. Um, was there ever a consideration in your own mind that you would sign with, 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 with them? At the time, I remember thinking if the money was right and, you know, I remember thinking that it's, a, it's a done deal if you win and I won and nothing came about. So, you know, as far as I was concerned, they lost out because, you know, if they had offered me a contract, I would have taken it. <clears throat> but they didn't. And, you know, Cage Warriors came along and, you know, Cage Warriors, they didn't pay me the greatest, but they kind of said, look, we'll promote you. And I looked at the bigger picture. So I knew that with their backing and their promotion, I would be able to get to the UFC and, you know, and the, it, for me, it was all about the bigger picture, you know. All I wanted to do is get to the UFC and I knew that Cage Warriors would get me there. 
was with Bellator, they would want to keep me. Um, they would want to obviously tie me down on contracts because they are a bigger promotion. So, yeah, you know, I, I like to think that I took the right um, the route and, you know, I got there to the UFC in the end. And Conor McGregor had already done a bit of a blueprint as well by becoming a double champ champ at Cage Warriors. You also become a champ and obviously then you go on to the UFC. Um, one of the, I wouldn't say, I don't want to call it a highlight, but something that must have made you feel super good at the time is when you fought on the undercard of Darren Till and Maz- Mazadol, because that is... That was a massive fight, you know. That were two two very big names in 2019. What was it like having a bit of a insight to the bigger kind of picture with UFC with these two massive names <laughs> fighting each other? So for me, that was a big turning point because I had never fought in uh, uh, an arena like that in my hometown. So my UFC debut and my second UFC fight, they were obviously big arenas, but they weren't in my hometown. So... I didn't have the crowd behind me. When I came out to the UFC London at the O2, <clears throat> man, that was special. I'll explain it. You know, I remember coming out and just thinking there's 20,000 people in here and they're all up on their feet. They're all clapping when I got the win. And that for me was that kind of moment where I made it, you know. Um, so, yeah, obviously being on that card was huge and being on the main card and you know, having like Darren Till headlining and stuff, that was pretty surreal. And yeah, you know, that's the moment that stayed with me for the rest of my life. And how does it feel being the only UFC Londoner current fighter on, on, their, uh, on their roster? It's a good feeling. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier with pressure, you know, it's added pressure when they come to London, but I do thrive under that pressure. And I'm hoping they don't sign any more London guys other than my teammates, just because I want to be selfish and say, you know, I am the only UFC London fighter. and. Uh, I feel like they should use that more. You know, I feel like they should promote, promote me more. Obviously, London's the, uh, the capital, you know, and obviously the UFC always do the shows in London. So, you know, I feel like they should promote me more as the London boy. Have you, um, have you met um, uh, Dana White a few times and, and chatted to him? And, uh, you know, what's he like as an individual? Mate, my experience with Dana, he's good as gold. You know, the, I had a fight in London where the guy pulled out the day before. And unfortunately, you know, I couldn't fight. It was too late. <clears throat> so um, I saw Dana and they didn't actually have to pay me anything. I saw Dana, I said, you know, my position, I said like, mate, you know, I was guided, I couldn't fight on the card. You know, I sort of hinted, is there a little bit of compensation, you know, to obviously cover some expenses. And he just said to me, like, what are you on, buddy? Like, you know, what's your fight person? I think it was 29 and 29. He just tapped me on the shoulder, said, mate, I'll pay you everything. And the win bonus. So... Yeah, my experience with Dana, I think he's a very, very nice man. Um, I've had very good experiences with him. You know, I know a lot of people give him stick and I don't know him well enough to to say that, you know, who he is as a person. But all I can say is that my experience with him and Brad Pickett, who's my coach, who I trust, you know, very much. So if Brad says good things about someone, you know, for me, that's also a, a positive and yeah, you know, I see him as a as a very good businessman. You know, I know a lot of people don't necessarily like him, but I can only speak highly of him from my own experiences. I've uh, listened to countless podcasts with him um, and different talks. He's been on, you know, things like Tony Robbins, uh, uh, you know, podcasts or talks. He sat down with, you know, some some amazing people. Grant Cardone's also interviewed him and. I feel like what you see is kind of what you get. He's a very successful yeah. business person. I think he's a billionaire. 
built or one of the, the biggest brands, fighting brands in the world. And he also looks after himself. There was a point in his life where he got a little bit overweight and it seems like in the last few years, he's been he's been on this pursuit of becoming uber fit and, and the best version of himself. And you can't knock someone like that. You know, he's, he's hungry. He wants the UFC to be even better over the years. And I just admire that as a business person myself. Um, one last talk about the actual sort of, you know, inside the UFC. Another big profile that is always around is Joe Rogan, who's the commentator and also the, you know, the sometimes the host. Um, have you ever met him? Have you ever come across him? What, what's he like? I've only met him briefly and that was just at the weigh-in. So I can't say I've had a conversation with him, but, you know, I shook his hand and I think I said it's an honour to meet you or something cheesy like that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of him. Um, you know, I listen to his podcasts. But not religiously, but I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. And, you know, I remember watching him when he was on Fear Factor. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's nice to see how successful he's doing. Yeah. Um, your take on the Jake Paul era, obviously being a fighter. Um, I've spoken to a lot of my guests, a lot of boxers about this, but never a UFC fighter. So Jake Paul has obviously had this bit of a plan to go into boxing and start attacking former UFC fighters and so far he's beaten them all. Jake Paul versus Nate Diaz, what was your kind of thoughts and feelings with that fight and then also the result? So I was in no doubt that Jake was going to win because it's a boxing fight. Um, You know, I think the Jake Paul thing that's going on, I think is damaging boxing. I don't think it's damaging MMA at all, other than you might get people thinking, oh, it keeps beating up MMA fighters. You know, boxers must be like better than MMA, but he's beating MMA fighters in a boxing ring. Um, the reason why I don't think it's good for boxing is because it's taking the limelight away from the high level guys. You know, seeing Jake Paul just smash MMA fighters is probably more entertaining for people than it is watching two high level Boxers going 12 rounds, you know, going to the decision. So, you know, you've obviously got your true passionate boxing fans who will always stay with the sport. But, you know, I do think, sorry, it's not even really Jake Paul's ruining it because I think Jake Paul is taking boxing very, very seriously, which is why I knew that he would beat Nate Diaz because, you know, I I can see how serious he's taking the sport. But it's the YouTube boxing that's come from that kind of Jake Paul thing. You know, it's the, I saw one the other day and, I didn't see the fight, but this girl just pulled her top up after the fight and got her boobs out. And, you know, it was on this misfits, misfits, misfits thing or boxing, something. Yeah. And I saw another one where there was two massive fat guys just fighting. And I was like, I think it, don't quote me on it, but I think it was the same show. And I just thought, how is this even happening? Do you know what I mean? You've gone from having the best boxers on the planet. You've got Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali. You've got all of these absolute legends in the sport that people have heard of. And now it's Jake Paul and there's, I know there's a porn star doing it now. And it's just a bit mad to me. You know, I think it is damaging boxing as a sport, but I do get it. If people are paying for it as a business, why wouldn't you do it? So uh, yeah, it's a funny old time. And it it obviously partly started... (laughs) with the Mayweather and McGregor fight back in 2017, I think it was. And now this year, we're going to be seeing Fury against Nangadu. What is your, um, what's your take on Fury fighting the former heavyweight UFC champion of the world? Uh, again, I don't like it, man. You know, 
uh, I, I really hope that Francis Ngannou can just pull it off, but it's a boxing event. Uh, you know, I think Tyson Fury is just going to box his head off. I think it's the same as saying you've got a badminton player that's going to go up against a tennis player. You know, <clears throat> the sports are similar. It's a combat sport, but it is completely different. So, you know, I'm... I'm not against it because I get it, you know, it's money and, you know, Francis Ngannou's earning a hell of a lot of money for it. So, you know, it's it's only good for him. But, yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of it. The uh, sort of glad you touched on slightly the, 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 the financial side of things because the two things I was going to say is Ngannou has come out, stated a few times, even before he actually officially quit the UFC, that he wasn't being paid enough. I think I saw a statistic that for his fights, he was getting roughly half a million dollars. Now, don't get me wrong. In the real world, half a million dollars, even if you fight once a year, is three, four times someone's annual wage and, and, and sometimes beyond that. So it's good money, don't get me wrong. But for what he does and for how short the career is and how risky it is, it kind of isn't a lot of money. Even if he fought twice in a year, got a million dollars, and let's just say you know, basically half of that might go in taxes, training, management, etc. It's not it's not actually a huge amount of money. And then then you've got Jake Paul being very outlandish with his comments and talking about Dana White a lot of the time. Part of the reason why he's doing what he's doing and having this voice is because he's saying that Dana White, the UFC, doesn't pay his athletes enough money. Are you can you see where where they're both coming from, or do you feel like they're just kind of nitpicking at certain scenarios? So I think it's knowing your worth. So I'm humble enough to know that the UFC could get rid of me tomorrow and do absolutely just fine. They're not going to lose out on anything other than maybe a couple of my fans going, oh, I'm not watching that anymore. Um, <clears throat> I get paid, as far as I'm concerned, very good money for the level I'm at. Now, in two years' time, when I like to think I'm UFC champion of the world and I'm selling out arenas, I'm selling cards, pay-per-view, you know, people are purely coming to see me, then that's when I'm going to want more money. And as far as I'm concerned, if I'm getting a cut of the pay-per-view, that's where things get fair. Um, so I think it's knowing your worth, which is the first thing. You know, when I made my UFC debut, $10,000 to fight, that's not a lot of money at all. But the UFC don't need me, you know. And I guess it's no different from, I don't know, you get a job at Starbucks and all you are is the, the trainee, you're just learning. You're not going to be on much money. But if you work your way up and I guess then you're the manager at the store, you're going to get more money. And it's the, the same kind of thing. You know, I think a lot of people are moaning and on Twitter about how much the UFC guys get paid that make their debuts. But then, you know, so I think John Jones was moaning because, he, I don't know, he didn't get 10 million. You know, who needs 10 million quid per fight? I think that's ridiculous. You know, I came out with something once and said, you know, instead of paying the footballers what they get paid, you know, I think Ronaldo's on like half a bill a year. <clears throat> um, paid emergency services more money. And, you know, everyone gave me like stick for it. And said, oh, you're just, you know, trying to get Dana White's back pocket and all that. Like he's going to see my, my messages. Um, but it's true. You know, I feel like, if I was to moan because I'm not getting paid a million pounds per fight, which I would love to get, by the way, I'd love to have a million pounds per fight. I'm going to despise the sport, you know, because I'm going to be sitting there thinking, right, I'm not getting paid a million quid. I'm only getting paid 45 and 45. You're never going to be happy. So I just remind myself that I am on 
Last year, I think I took home in the whole year about $210,000, which compared to when I was laboring was, you know, it would have took me, I don't know, five years? No, more. It would have took me a long time to earn that. Um, so I'm very grateful for the money that I am on. You know, obviously my position may change in a couple of years. And, you know, I think for Francis Ngannou, yes, if he was on half a million a fight and he's selling out cards, I think he should have got more money. But I don't know the ins and outs, you know, if he's getting a cut of pay-per-view, you know, and stuff like that. But, you know, he's obviously getting paid a shit ton now. And, you know, I think Nate Diaz apparently just got paid 10 mil to fight Jake Paul, but... I think that's disgusting money, you know? You're telling me you get paid 10 million quid to, to box what people were calling a YouTuber when my dad was in the fire brigade, he's risking his life to earn 35,000 quid a year. You know, it's ridiculous as far as I'm concerned to earn that much money, but I'm not going to turn it away. You know, obviously, if someone said to me, we're going to pay you 10 mil to fire, man, come on, of course I'm going to take it. But to moan that I'm not getting paid that much or something like that, you know, I, I do think is a bit crazy, but... Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it also does show the excitement that if you build up your profile enough, regardless whether, you know, you, you come out of the UFC on a high or not, if, you, if, if you've got such a much of a profile, then the likes of these kind of celebrity boxing matches or other things can, can manifest it itself and, and you can earn some serious money. And I guess it's no different to like china or over now in saudi arabia that they're homing in i mean even america with Messi, they're homing in on these big profile names that they're still very good footballers but they're coming at the back end of their career and they're kind of homing in and paying them uber amount of huge amount of money just to go over and sign for a couple of years and, and do what they do best and that kind of is the exciting thing about building up your own profile as a ufc fighter. yeah i think once you've got a profile is money can be made anywhere you know, um, if you've got a million followers on Instagram, that's a million potential customers. You know, if you bring out a drinks brand, that's a million potential people that are going to buy your drinks brand. So if you sell that drink for five pounds, that's potentially five million quid you're going to make. That's how I see it. You know, I see every Instagram follower as a potential customer. Um, and then obviously you're going to get more sponsorships. So I do try and say to the up and coming fighters now in my gym that look, you do need to be able to fight, obviously, to make it in the UFC, but build your profile and that will help and, you know, boost your uh, your net worth, if you like. Definitely. A couple more things I just want to ask you, Nathaniel. So McGregor versus Chandler, I think it's kind of been announced now. It's going to be happening over in December. And McGregor had those two back-to-back -back losses against Poignier, Um and obviously the last one was horrendous where he snapped his leg basically in half. But then since then, he's had all this success in, in the business world. My question to you as a current UFC fighter is when someone's made that much money and when someone's actually had a very bad, kind of can be life-changing injury, yeah. are you the same fighter? Do you have the same hunger? Do you have a little bit of anxiety that that same injury could come back? So I don't think he's the same fighter that he was. But I, I can tell that he's a fighter that loves the, the glitz and the glam. You know, like we said earlier, because you have got enough money to just ride off into the sunset. As far as I'm concerned, I love the money that would come with the fame, but I don't want fame. I would hate to be in a restaurant with my wife and kids and have paparazzi. You know, I would hate to be bombarded 
at a cinema, you know, or something like that. So for me, I want the money that comes with the fame, but I don't actually want the fame. So kind of bittersweet. Whereas with McGregor, he obviously likes that fame. You know, he likes that attention. Even the other day at the boxing, you know, you could kind of see that, you know, he, he wants the attention, you know, the fights were going on and he's up shadow boxing and, you know, how he poured that, that drink in Anthony Joshua's mouth. I was like, I get it, you know, you're selling your brand, but I just thought it was so distasteful, you know. I was like, let the guy have his moment. And, you know, for me, I cringed, but it's everywhere now. On Instagram, everyone has shared McGregor pouring the, the drink in Anthony Joshua's mouth. Um, you know, he then had like a beef with KSI as Anthony Joshua was trying to talk with him. And again, I was like, man, just give the guy his moment. But he wants to be in that limelight. And I give it to him. It's working. He's got 50 million followers on Instagram. So, you know, what he does sells and I can completely get it. Um, so yeah, you know, I think sometimes it's the, the, the fame that they're after. But mm. me, I think at that point, I, I would still train, but I wouldn't train as hard. So, you know, I can't say how hard he's training, but I'm sure there isn't that same grit and determination as there was 10 years ago. Mm. You mentioned about fame as well. I know, let's just say, there's, there's the Conor McGregor's famous and then there's, there's you know, as, as the list goes down, you know, there's obviously well-known fighters. And if you're like a noob, if you're like a proper fan of UFC, you're going to know pretty much every single fighter in there. And then when you become celebrity kind of famous, you can walk down the street and regardless whether that person's a fan of UFC, boxing or football, they know you just because, yeah. just because you're famous. I mean, you, you mentioned you don't, really know too much about the art world but if I said Picasso and Banksy these are two names pretty much you're guaranteed to know because they're bigger than art they're their own big brand you must have had a bit of a taste in it though because there must be when you're in London your hometown or where you, when you go to these boxing fights or UFC fights and even if you're not competing people must come over to you what, what's that like being known having a bit of taste of fame and and the celebrity type world so the best ones is i've been jogging once and someone goes you're right champ let's go champ or something like that you know good luck on your next fight i love them you know when none none bothered me they'll stop me i went to the museum once with my missus saying to do on a day off and as i walked in someone walked out and just went good luck next week mate and i was like thanks mate you know what i mean i appreciate that then you get the ones let's call them the you go to the pub they're drunk and they're chewing down my ear. They're spitting all over me, telling me how good I am. And I'm one of these people. I'm very, if you ask me, oh, are you good at MMA? I'll say, I'm all right. You know, I don't like. Humble. I don't like to boast. And if anything, just detrimental. If you said to me, sell your teammate, I'll be like, oh, he's the best thing ever. You know, I'll be really good at selling. I'm good at selling myself to like a sponsor, let's say, when it comes to business, because I don't look at myself as I'm talking about me. I look at as we're talking on a business level now. So I'm talking about me as a business, but when it comes to just people, <clears throat> I cringe when they give me compliments. You know, I've had it before. We was at Winter Wonderland in, in London. We was having a drink, me, my missus, my mate, and his girlfriend. And this lad come up to me and he was drunk and he was all over me. And it was fun. And it was like, oh, you're right, mate. Yeah, nice to meet you. Shake hands. And then I couldn't stop cringing. And he was going, he was going to my girlfriend you must love getting in bed with him and all this. And he's like, I'm not gay, but I would shag him. And I was just like, mate, I'm cringing. You know, please just stop. It was, but I I can't ask him to stop because it's like, you're being nice to me, but now I'm thinking, go away. 
Do you know what I mean? I'd rather you actually insult me so I can actually say to you, get away from me now. Because that's all I wanted to say, but I couldn't. Cause, and he, he didn't go. He brought his missus over. Come oh. and sat with us. Um, and, you know, his missus was, I think, even looking like, you know, he was looking at her going, do you know who this is? And I'm like, like I could see she didn't too know who much. I was. Yeah. And it's too much. It's far too much for me. And I know some people would probably love that. They'd be like, yeah, I'm the boy. You know what I mean? But for me, I was cringing the whole time. And I get like that on, even if someone just compliments me, you know, if, if I came in and you said, oh, I've been watching your fights, mate, you're mustard, you are, you're mustard. If you kept saying it, I'd be like, stop, man, because it just makes me cringe. And uh, yeah, but the ones where people go, oh, good luck on your next fight, mate, or, you know. They're respectful. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love hearing people talk highly about me when I'm not there. Do you know what I mean? I love to, you know, if I see like a, a podcast, let's say, and they're talking about me and how talented I am. And, you know, I saw Liam Harrison and say about how good I was on a podcast with Paul Smith, the, the comedian. That was a nice feeling. You know, that was a really good feeling. But when I'm there, I just... What about the other side? Is any drunk or any kind of idiot try to approach you to antagonize you because they know you are a UFC fighter? No, never. And part of me would think, yeah, go and try it. You know, part of me, uh, I think when I was out before, like, I think I thought, go on. Someone, like, I think there was some guy in a pub once. He was just being an arsehole to people. And I remember thinking, go on, try it with me. But... You know, I'm glad he didn't because otherwise I'd get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, you must have a bit of a superpower kind of feeling knowing that regardless how big someone is, if they're just a big brute and lump and they're trying to stick it on you, you can handle yourself. That must be quite a good feeling to have. Yeah, 100%. Um, it's confidence. You know? Have you ever had to implement it ever? No, no, never, mate. Never. And I think what it is, is let's say I started when I was 15 or 16. Before that, I've had people try and rob me, you know, Road men come up when I was a kid, like 14, give me your phone, that sort of thing. And uh, I never gave it to him, but I remember thinking like, shit, I wish I knew how to defend myself. <clears throat> but even if someone come up to rob me now, if they had a massive knife or a gun, yeah, you can have whatever you want, mate. There's my phone, there's my, my watch, do you know what I mean? But having the confidence of knowing that I can defend myself, I think people sense that because since then I've never had one person try and rob me, try and start on me. You know, and I don't exactly look intimidating. Do you know what I mean? I'm five foot six. I'm not a bit of a brute that, you know, if I'm on a train station and someone wants to pick on someone, I'm probably the first person you should look at. But I think that I give that sense of confidence or that I'm not scared. And I think people just avoid that. You know, I think people, or definitely thieves and bullies, you know, I think they want to um, prey on the weak. And I think that I give that... Um, confidence out there that you can't just do that with me i think that's what stops it and deters it from because i've never had anyone try and start on me since i've been training yeah last couple of things so to round off this podcast i know you've mentioned a few times about becoming world champion at ufc honestly when do you believe you're going to become the ufc champion of the world so i believe now you know i'm on a free win streak at featherweight I think I need another four wins to get me into title contention. And I think I'd have them four years because now the fights are going to be getting bigger. You don't necessarily have as many. So I definitely think that within the next two years, I will be looking at getting a shot for the title or in talks of being the next in line. And then I'll take it, man. So I think 32. I'm 30 now. Give me two years. And I, I like to think that I'm uh, the first London UFC champ. And is there a person, individual, a fighter right now that you think that could be that could be them? I could be fighting them for the world championship. 
And if it is them, I've got their number because of X. So I think, so Alexander Volkanovsky at the moment is the like, what they'd say, pound for pound number one. But he's getting on a bit. So I don't know if in two years, whether he will still be the champ. But there's a good guy, Elia Trapora, who's very talented. He's very well-rounded and he's young. So I feel like he may be the next champ. Um, but yeah, this is the UFC, man. You know, anything can happen and the, the division's always changing. You know, there's guys that aren't ranked who look like absolute monsters. So I think in two years, anything can change. But I would definitely say and if Volkanovski's not still the champ, then uh, Ilya Chapura, I think, will be at the time. Here's my last question. I came up with my own catchphrase mantra when I was younger, when I first started my, my first business. And it goes like this. Be happy, never content. I've got my own interpretation of what that means. But if I were to ask the UFC fighter, Nathaniel Wood, what does be happy, never content mean to you? So I would say that that, for me, is be happy with what you've got, but always strive for more which is how you should live because I guess if you had nothing else to look forward to or to strive for then what is the point good conclusion thank you very much for your time mate I really really appreciate uh, the conversation and the episode and to the audience uh, please follow this man because he's going to be future world champion we look forward to seeing it thanks for having me and uh Sorry for the coughing, man. I don't know what's come over today. So. No problem. Be happy, never content, and thank you very much once again.